Welcome to the Rise to the Challenge podcast. Joining me today, he's the director of Dave Bolton Inspires, a keynote speaker, a mental health advocate, and a former world kickboxing champion. It's Dave Bolton. How are you doing today, Dave? I'm fine. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining us, and I'm excited to learn more about you and your rise to the challenge. First thing we'd like to do, talk about where you're from and what were you involved in growing up? Um, well, I'm currently living in England, uh, a place called uh, Wirral, which is just outside Liverpool for your listeners, famous for the Beatles. Um, but I was actually born in Germany. Uh, my mum and dad were both in the, uh, the military, so they were both in the uh, Royal Air Force. So I was actually born in a RAF hospital in Wegberg in West Germany, as it was back then. So obviously you had the West and East. Um, loved my child growing up. I was there till about nine. I was nine years old. And it was just the best childhood growing up on, on a base. You, you, you're known as a scaly brat if you're from the Air Forces. So um, no, it was a great experience. Um, uh, when I was about seven or eight, I was kind of selected for high potential to become an elite sportsman. Um, and I kind of captained the Great British Forces school teams racing against other teams out so my what I was good at was the 100 meters the 200 meters and I could run a third leg of a four by 100 meters like no one else and then um, sport became my passion and became my life from there. Growing up on a military base did you kind of get certain life skills set to you right at the beginning or did it kind of take you a little while to understand those skills? Yeah I think what I'm a very confident outgoing person and I and I can kind of adapt to any situation. I think that comes from when I was in, in the forces because I did move around. So I think I had about, by the time I was nine, I was in my eighth school, seventh or eighth school. So you, ha you were forced to adapt. You're forced to be moving around from base to base. Because my sister was at, we came back over, back to England because my sister was born in RAF Stafford. So moving around, you're forced to make new friends. So I think that communication skills, that being able to adapt to my surroundings is what I really learned from the, 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 at a very young age, we say, from the, from the forces, growing up on a forces base. When you were moving around, was it hard for you to make friends because you didn't want to kind of build that bond with someone because you never know when you were going to move next? Oh, definitely not. No, my mum, when she was here, uh, used to laugh. Apparently, I'd talk to anyone and everyone. Um, and sometimes I'd get lonely and I'd be, as the postman, the mailman, however you want to call it out there, came up the post, I'd be opening the letter and talking to him. Uh, I never sat still. Apparently I was always, always into something really hyperactive, really had loads of energy. Uh, no, I, I just found that I, I, I can make friends anyway and it's carried on to this day now. Did you have any motivations or inspirations growing up? Um, I liked athletics. So I was always watching the Olympics or the European Championships and watching, uh, you know, greats who used, used to race. Like uh, in England, it was like Steve Cram and um, oh, Linford Christie, the, you know, the sprinters, these sorts of people. Then Carl Lewis as well. So that was that era of, of the 80s, really. So that's what I kind of looked up to. They were inspired, really, uh, growing up. What was that dream job that you wanted? What was that path that you wanted to take? Oh, <laughs> when I was younger, I wanted to be a fire engine. So not a fireman. Not someone who puts out, I wanted to be the actual engine. That was what my mum said. That's all I wanted to do. And I, I mean, Nan was hoping I'd become a bird watcher, uh, which is known as a twitcher because I liked nature. But yeah, that never um, Growing up, I kind of really, I think all I ever wanted to do was, was join, join the, the military. My mum and dad had been in the military. My granddad 
was in the military. My great granddad was in, you know, it, there's been a line of descendants. So I don't, there was no pressure for me to do it. I just kind of thought that's the pathway I'm going to end up choosing. Were you able to follow in their footsteps and go into the military? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. So talk about that experience. Yeah, so I left school with quite uh, with with good grades, uh, and I joined the the Air Force, Royal Air Force, at the age of eighteen. Um, kind of the Air Force is kind of where I grew up, really. Um, not that I was I was slightly immature back then, as we all were. Very because I was good at sports. Uh, you know, I've been running for England. Play county level football, rugby, you name it, volleyball. I, w- I was good at basically. I was good at all most sports. Anything I tried my hand at, I, I was good at. So I was, I was quite cocky, should we say? A bit, um, bit. You know, if, if, do you understand that term, cocky? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, not a bad thing, but that's kind of, ha- kind of how I went in. So, yeah, so I joined up. I did three years, but um, I truly grew up when I, uh, I did. I was deployed to um, Air Ops Iraq out in the Gulf. So I did. I served a tour um, of Air Ops Iraq, and I was based in uh, Ali Al Salam Air Base, which is in Kuwait City, which is in Kuwait. And what were, we were based twenty miles off the border. It's called Operation Southern Watch. So we actually patrolled not only our base, but we went and patrolled the actual um, the border of Iraq and Kuwait and crossed into it. Um, funnily enough, I was attached to the American uh, Security Forces and the Marines as well. So I, I worked alongside beside them, which was which was which is quite good, really, because our base, we were all in the same area at Ali Al Salam Air Base, but ours were like, we were in buildings that were like falling to pieces, four to a room. Uh, the facilities, we had a gym, which wasn't the best. We had a cinema, which was just a hall with a sheet put up and stuff. Because I was attached to the Americans, um, I was allowed to go up onto their site, which is called The Rock. Oh, dear Lord. I tell you what, they had... Um, McDonald's, Wendy's, Baskin and Robbins. They had swimming pools. Uh, they, they had servants when they were, were when they were in the mess halls. Shall we say as we call it mess halls? Um, they had the biggest gym I've ever seen. They just literally had everything. So um, I was yeah. People got a bit jealous because I was always I was always got making up friends, going up there and staying with all them lot instead of being down with with my lads. So uh, and I made some good friends in, in the, the um in the Marines, the American Marines, and they gave me what's called a challenge coin before, before I left. And it's a coin that they get, get, you get issued with. And if you, f- you flick it, it lands on a side. If you haven't got yours on you, you have to do press-ups. So he gave me, you only get issued one, and, he, and this, this lad gave me his. So that was quite nice. But uh, I loved my time out there. Really good. Grew up out there, as I said. But it was a lot different. So this is 2000. So Operation Southern Watch ran from 98 to 2003. But this wasn't boots on the ground this time. It was, it was, it was done by the air. So we'd be on patrol, and you'd see Apaches going off, loaded up, and tornadoes, you know, all flying out, and then they come back empty. So a lot of it was done by by the air. We had our bit of fun night, but nothing major. But loved it out there, really did. Being in the Royal Air Force, what challenged you in a way that you had to kind of rise to the challenge in a way? Um, going through training, uh, it was a big one. Um, because they're trying to weed, uh, as you know, they're trying to weed out the weak. Because what the forces taught me and how I grew up was trust, camaraderie, ship, um, you know, um, leadership, discipline, you know, um, punctuality, massively. Um, as anyone who's listening in the forces know, that's kind of the bread and butter of what you what you do. Um, yeah. What was the question again? I've gone off on a tangent. 
<laughs> what, what challenged you? Oh yeah, challenge. So going through training was a challenge because they're putting you through. Uh, we had two weeks where we were getting to about an hour's kip, an hour's sorry, an hour's uh, sleep at night because you'd have to be up all night ironing, uh, bulling, or polishing your boots. Uh, you'd be yeah getting everything spick and span, cleaning all the toilets, sewing labels in every bit of kit, every sock, everything really disciplined. And then you'd be up for parade. And then I remember one night he said, "Listen, you're two weeks in now. We're going to leave you alone. Get a good night's sleep because we're going to be with you in the morning." So we all settle down. We get into to, to bed. And next thing, the flashbangs come through the door. Get up, we're under attack. And then we're we're out on a full exercise. So it was like, ugh. And um, we went through a flight of, I think it was about 52. There was only about 28 of us. Um, we it cut in half by the end. So it was getting through that. So it's more physically, I've always been fifth. That wasn't a problem for me. It's mentally. It's how, how you cope mentally in that situation. Um, and I cope quite well. Would you say for you, you had the physical capabilities from playing sports. Do you think that nowadays, if people are going in the military, they only rely on that physical capability? But it's all, like you mentioned, it's about the mentality that you have also. Yeah, yeah. So you, to be honest, you, you've got to be physically fit. There's no way right way around it. But I think it would be advisable to maybe work on your mental resilience. That kind of putting yourself on in abnormal situations and see how you whether you 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 sink or you thrive, isn't it? So it's putting yourself in situations that are going to hurt and it's going to make that part of your brain think, yeah, I'm done now, let's quit. And it's about pushing beyond that because your brain, your mind will give up a hundred times before your body physically will. So it's learning about that, learning about what you're capable of uh, and testing yourself, putting, putting mental stress on yourself to see how you cope with it would set you up a lot, a lot better for going in. Was being in the Royal Air Force the long-term plan or what were you hoping to do next? No, it was never a long-term plan. Um, I always wanted to become, um, I always wanted to go into the military and then I started to, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I always had a law enforcement was always a bit of a thing that I had in the back of my head. Um, so I was in there and I came back from, from, um, from Iraq and the Gulf. I was bored. I was just bored in this country. It, it was just boring what we were doing and I needed to get out. And um, the police, Merseyside Police, which is the area which I cover, big area, Probably tiny compared to you lot in America, but <laughs> but it's a, it's a big area. Um, they were taken on, so I applied, um, and after a long selection process, I was accepted and joined as a police officer in Merseyside when I was about 21. So what was the path that you took being in the police force? What were you wanting to accomplish? Well, at first, when I joined, I wanted to be in the firearms unit, so armed police officers, because over here we don't... Not everyone's armed. You have to be specialist qualified. And being being in the military and shooting all sorts of weapons, which including a lot of the Americans on the top, the back of a fifty cal in a Humvee in the desert, um, you know, I kind of wanted to go into that. But circumstances changed um, when I, when obviously I, I had my accident. What was the biggest similarities? What helped you prepare to be in the police force? I think it's the it's that respect, that discipline. That um, that reliance on, on 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 your mates, but also that you can be entrusted to lead yourself um, is because at twenty one, uh, not many people were getting into the police. Because what would usually happen? They say go away and get some life experience. Now I've been in a war zone. I've got a medals. Um, there's not much they could say. Go away and get some, you know, get some life experience. So because every question they put on me, when have you been involved in conflict? Well, when I was out in the desert, we 
when have you been involved with in charge of a team? Well, actually, when I, you know, it's so I think that leadership, that discipline definitely was the main one that carried over into the police because you, you go through a similar, it's, it's nothing like the military training, but you go through a basic training in the police as well, which I flew through. Well, you talked about the life experience. It's almost like even with a job interview where they're like, oh, you need more life experience or more experience in this area. And it's like we all have different experience and maybe it's not how a certain person thinks of it, but we can all relate it to the things that we're going for in a way. So talk, you mentioned about your accident. Talk about that moment and what was going Yeah, on. so it was, it's now, two, I joined the police in 2001. So it's now 2004. Um, I ride a motorbike. Um, I just, it's September the, uh, September the 6th, 2004. Um, and I've just moved into a, a, my first property. So a flat, um, really nice flat with my girlfriend, who is now my wife. So we've been together since we were 16. So a childhood sweetheart that, that lasted. It's strange that. But um, when we just found out that I was 20, what I was old then? 23. Just found out that she was pregnant. Sam was pregnant with our first child. Obviously it was an accident, but uh, a happy accident when he's being good. Um, so life's going great. It's my day off and I kind of text message um, my partner in, in work called Russ Parker and he rides bikes well. And I said, it's a really nice day today. Um, the road conditions were perfect I said it's midweek so there's not going to be much traffic so should we go do you want to go for a ride into Wales because Wales has got stunning scenery rolling hills really wide roads it's, it's just a, when you're riding a bike it's just the dream place to go and ride so he said yeah just before I pulled off um, just before I was about to leave Sam said to me I've got this weird feeling I'm not going to see you again can you be can you be careful so I laughed it off and went alright yeah whatever uh, and I rode off to my mate Russ's um, waiting for him outside, his wife comes out and goes, now listen, and she's never said this before, I don't want anyone, I don't want to have to visit anyone in hospital today, so be careful. So it was like everyone knew what was going to happen, apart from me. So we went into Wales, uh, as I said, really nice uh, day, not much traffic on the road, um, and we come into this famous road, which is called the Horseshoe Pass in Wales. Now it's a tight left-hand corner, um, so anyone who knows how to ride bikes, basically you come right down off the power, slow down, as you lean into the corner, you come back on the power so it hugs the road and you, you it's called ride in the corner. What you should never do is break on a corner. Unfortunately for me, Russ was about um, about 200 yards, 200 feet-ish in front of me, nice big gap. Um, he went round the corner, I leant into it. As I've come on the power, there's been diesel and gra gravel all over the road. Okay. So what's happened is, yeah, what happened is the back wheel has kicked out as though I'm going to low side, so drop down and my, autonomous reaction, my natural reaction, without me even thinking, was I jabbed that brake. That forced the bike to sit upright and follow its path, which is across onto the wrong side of the road, which usually wouldn't have been too bad. But unfortunately for, for me, about six to eight feet away, with a 23-ton articulated lorry. Wow. If the gravel and the diesel wasn't there, everything that you were doing would have been... It, would, it wouldn't have the same outcome. No, no, it'd have been fine. And I crashed at 20 miles an hour. So I wasn't even speeding in the police, but you know, I didn't anyway. But yeah, if it wasn't for that growl at that point, if I hadn't gone on, to, if, I believe in fate anyway, uh, which I'll go on to as we talk through the story. And if I hadn't come on that power at that point, maybe it wouldn't have happened. Maybe it would, but hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? So after the accident, you were ended up in a coma. What was the next thing you remember with 
waking up in the hospital bed. Yeah, I'll just talk about a little bit of fake thing. So as I, when they say time stands still, trust me, it does. When I was when I suddenly saw this this giant juggernaut of a lorry coming towards me, um, I had a conversation with myself which felt like it was 10, 15 minutes long. It happened in milliseconds. That single conversation saved my life. The upshot from that conversation was that I needed to jump from the bike. That was my only option. So I shifted all my weight onto my left-hand side of the peg and jumped onto the, uh, jumped off, sliding towards the uh, right-hand side of the road, the right one. Obviously, it's different. Uh, right, the right side of the road being the left one. Um, unfortunately for me, or, unf- or fortunately, I went under the back wheel of the cab, so the actual main plate, the, the main driving force of it, and the back, two, the back front two wheels, sorry, the front two wheels of the actual articulated parts of the trailer, and it crushed, crushed my legs completely. Um, had no pain whatsoever. Remember the whole entire incident, sliding on my back, the coldness of the floor. I can still smell the fumes of the petrol and the burning rubber. Um, but I had no pain at all. Body's an amazing thing. It kicks out endorphins, oxytocins. Either that or I was in shock. Um, I knew it was bad because my leg, left leg had completely snapped and was a, oh, had gone above my head and was now lying at a right angle to the side of me, going the way it shouldn't have been. Um, I completely crushed my right leg as well. Had no pain, but there was a lot of blood coming out from my leg. I didn't know at the time, but I'd actually severed my femoral artery in my left leg. At that point, even then, I said to myself, right, stay calm. If you panic, your heart rate's going to rise and you're going to bleed out on the, on the floor. And that, that decision saved my life as well. Um, just by chance, the car behind me, so the vehicle behind me, had an off-duty paramedic on board. Now, she must have saved my life. She must have stemmed that, um, that artery. I, di- I didn't know it at the time, but, but she must have been. How lucky am I to have a paramedic behind us as well? So I was placed eventually after a long time. I had to be airlifted by helicopter to hospital, uh, where a lot later on, I was told that I was 30 seconds away from dying. I was likely to prove at the scene. So I, I was basically classed as not, I'm not going to make hospital. And I'm going to die on the, on, the, on the floor or I'm not going to make it to hospital. And I was 30 seconds away from dying. At one point in surgery, they were putting blood in and it was spraying out. Um, so again, I always think if that helicopter had been on another job, dealing with someone else or they'd been delayed, I wouldn't be here again now. Um, when I got into the helicopter, the last thing I remember him saying is, I'm going to give you something for the pain. I said, I'm not in any pain. He said, I think you're in shock. I remember a sharp scratch and then a fog. And as you said, I was placed in an induced coma for eight days. Um, I got to Glencluid Hospital in Wales where um, I had a 12-hour life-saving operation. As I said, they were already putting blood in and it was spraying out. Um, I'd completely degloved my leg, my left leg, from above my knee to just below um, my ankle. So that means I've completely stripped all the skin off it. It had dislocated, so I had no ligaments, no tendons. It was only being held on by a few strands of veins and muscle fibres. Very, very lucky. The only reason why I kept it is because before this accident, um, I was in the team, Team GB, Great British team, to go to the World Championships in Germany to fight because I'm a kickboxer. I trained everything, mixed martial arts, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but what I was really, really good at was kickboxing. So I was really fit, so my blood supply was that good. That was the only reason why they decided to potentially keep my leg because they were going to amputate it at one point. Um, I lost three quarters of my calf and my left leg. Um, I had to have six external steel rods drilled into, uh, obviously, my femur. 
and my um, radius or when I was, yeah, on the lower part of my leg because my leg wasn't ha- was just flopping around. There was no bone there. It completely crushed. As I said, I only had a few veins there, m- muscle fibres. So that was there to hold it straight. My right leg had completely shattered and I broke my kneecaps, your patella, in six places, which apparently is really hard to do, but, you know, I'm not average, so I, I thought I'd just do it even worse. Um, so, yeah, so I had all that going on. I had to have uh, internal wiring around my kneecap. Uh, my leg was in a full cast. Um, apparently tried to bring me out of a coma on day seven, but apparently I was, obviously I don't remember this, but apparently I was in so much pain that they put me back under. So on day eight, they brought me around. And the first thing I kind of remember is being held down on this bed, being pushed into the bed, because I was on life support machine, so I'm being intubated. So I've got this tube that runs into my throat, down into my lung, which keeps me alive. When you come round, you don't know this. So the first natural reaction is to try and grab this thing and rip it out. Now, if I was to have done that, I'm going to rip my lungs out. I'm going to die. There's going to be, there's no ways about it. So they hold you down. So they slowly took it out. And all I remember is them saying, breathe. Dave, breathe. But because I've been on this ventilator, we, you know, we breathe autonomously. We do it without even thinking. But because my body, had, I hadn't physically been doing it. It had been done by a machine. It felt like an eternity. It really did. But I couldn't breathe. And eventually I took this big gasp of air. I don't really remember much else about that. It's not like in the movies where you sit up and you start talking. I was that heavily sedated and on that much painkillers and drugs. And um, I didn't know where I didn't even know I'd been in an accident at all. Um, I then had to be transferred to a specialist hospital in Liverpool. So out of Wales, back to Liverpool for skin grafting. So skin grafting is where they you take you down to surgery. They take a fine layer of skin off a donor area. So mine was my upper part of my, uh, my leg. Then they, play, they, they put it through a, a mangle or this machine that f- stretches it out. They place it over the, the, the side, so the, the hole of my bottom left leg. And then they, put, they staple it with a staple gun, medical staples. Um, so I had to go there for that procedure. Unfortunately for me, uh, whilst I was waiting to be transported there, I had, obviously you have morphine over there. It's um, a patient-controlled morphine switch. So it locks out after three doses, so you can't overdose on it. Unfortunately for me, I was falling asleep, waking up, and I thought I was in surgery. So I would hit this button three times, pass out, come back around, and I did this all day. That led me to contract morphine psychosis. Yeah. You're not supposed to be able to overdose them, but the fact that I kept delivering it all the time and no one had read it, no one's fault but my own, but I was in a, I didn't even know what was happening. Um, yeah, more, it was horrific, morphine psychosis. Horrific. Um, but, go on. During this time, you mentioned how, I think your girlfriend at the time said, I have a bad feeling about this. And yeah, then yeah. your friend's um, partner said, I don't want to go visit someone at the hospital. When, how did they find out about what happened? Um, well, Russ, unfortunately, after the police had been and because the, the whole the whole road was closed off, it was like a crime scene because I was likely to die. Uh, and even that, it needs to see whether it was my fault or the lorry driver's fault. And, and, and obviously, they came back that it was no one's fault. They said, we don't actually know how it really happened. And when they got my side of the story a lot later on, they, they understood that's how it was. Russ had to drive back home from Wales. And apparently on the way home, he nearly got run over because his head was with, his head was with kind of, oh God, I've just seen my mate in pieces, leg hanging off, blood everywhere. And then suddenly I'm getting airlifted and he's being told that I may not make it. So he had that on his mind. And he, he nearly got run over himself on the bike. 
my wife's a nurse, so she was in work. Um, and the police went to the ward and her ward manager came to tell her. And she actually said, she said, oh, the police are here to see you, Sam. And she went, is it David? And she went, is it, you know, is it Dave? And she went, yeah, yeah. He said, right, if he's not, if he's not dead at hospital, I'm going to kill him anyway. That was her. That was her first. I don't think she realised the severity of what was going on. So that was how she found out the police. And then she she was rushed to hospital um, in the police, obviously because I was potentially I was going to die before she got there. So that's how they found out. Talk about the recovery stage after you're going through all these processes and what was going. How did you keep that positive mindset and be focused on doing anything it takes to get back to where you are today? Yeah, it was hard because especially coming out from the morphine psychosis where you have extreme paranoia. So the first day in Western Hospital, I saw two nurses and everything, morphine psychosis is visualizations um, that, every, that you see around, you know, the fact we're having this conversation, this is what I would see and say you wouldn't be there. Um, first day was I saw two nurses at the end of the bed and they physically said, um, I can't believe he's done this. He's, he's been on a motorbike accident. He's taken up a bed. What a waste of a bed. How do we get rid of him? Well, we poisoned his people's food for, let's do that. So I thought they were poisoning my food. They were probably just talking about the next patient. Mm -hmm. So I withdrew. So I didn't speak to her. I didn't know I'd been in an accident. I didn't know I'd been in a, it, it, I didn't even know where it was. The final straw came when I was rocking in my bed and my, uh, Sam, my wife, girlfriend, now my wife, uh, and my mum came and I said, why you visit me every day? It must cost you a fortune. And they were like, no, no we're what do you mean? It's only down the road. You know, we were about 40 minutes away. Um, I said, it's not 40 minutes away. I said, how'd you get to Canada? I thought I was in a mental institute in Canada and I'd been sectioned. Wow. So obviously mental health concerns were raised for me. And the doctor came, the on-call doctor, and I had a moment of clarity and I said, take me off everything. He says, you can't, you'll be in far too much pain. I said, I'd rather be in pain than stuck in this void of reality. I don't know what's real. I don't know where I am. I don't know what's going on. Um, so obviously they, take, they have to take me off. So they took me off two days later. I just remember waking up and that fog had lifted. My brain was a bit more clear. And I looked round and went, right, I'm in hospital. Still haven't put the pieces together. And then I looked down at my legs. So obviously I've got no skin. It's bandaged up. I haven't been for surgery for the skin graft and that's why I'm at, uh, I'm at Western. Um, so I've got these sheets over me, which are like a tent because I've got these external pins. But my bed's blood soaked because I'm still bleeding. Even I'm having blood transfusions every day while I'm there. And I'm still bleeding. So the sheets are all bloodstained. Didn't know what, you've got to remember, I don't even know where I am. I look to my right leg, which is at a full, full cast up to my hip. And my fighting weight was about 78 kilograms. I know you do pounds. I don't know what it is in pounds out there. But I'd basically gone down to, um, which was like 12 and a half stone. I'd gone down to seven and a half stone. I'd nearly lost like over a third of my body weight in the space of three weeks. So waking up to that, looking around, seeing the state I was in. Was it was a shock, a real shock. Um, to go on to your question, I went through all I went through all my operations, did that fine, um, and had skin grafting on my leg. I was told that I would never walk again, and if I, by some miracle I did, I would never be able to run, never be able to. Um, basically, I would never be able to bend my, my knee. Um, I'd always have to walk with a an aid, so a walking stick, a specialist frame. Um, they said that's it. Now I'm 23. Sports been my whole life. I've got a kid on the way. I wasn't prepared to accept that. So my focus, my positivity, after being down initially, you know, why me? Um, my focus was I want to be able to walk again, to be a dad who can, whether it's a boy or a girl, play football, play 
you know, sport, run in the park, you know, just do dad things with the kids without being that stupid saying now that kind of burden to them, like their dads picking them up in the, at the schoolyard on crutches and can't walk or can't run. Um, that was, so that was a real focus for me to get myself back. Um, I had to learn how to walk again, um, which was a challenge in itself because I've been lying, so we're four or five months in hospital now. Um, my blood pressure was horrific, obviously with the blood transfusions, constantly having them, but also I've been laying down for too long. The first day they said, right, you're ready to, you know, we, you're going to get your walk in. The physiotherapist came down and she sat me up. And I just remember waking up on her shoulder and I was a bit embarrassed. I thought I'd fell asleep. My blood pressure was that poor that I passed out every time I sat up. Wow. So it took me a week just to be able to sit up properly without passing out. So that was hard in itself. Um, eventually, uh, I managed, my legs still fixed straight now because I've still got the pins in. And I'm walking up and down, uh, you know, start working with a, a Zimmer frame type thing, like this metal contraption with wheels on it. That, um, and I'm slowly walking, taking a couple of steps and nothing to, you know, nearly passing out. Eventually, I'm up and down the corridor um, where to get released from Whiston to come back to the hospital where I live, I had to be able to do the stairs. So um, with a crutch, I could just about manage it. So I thought I was going to get released to this hospital get the pins removed, um, go down for surgery, get my ligaments, so my ACL, my medials, uh, my MCLs all attached and I crack on with life. That couldn't have been further from the truth. I did have all my pins removed, but basically because my leg had been straight for so long, scar tissue had grown into the joint. Now scar tissue is like stretching the lever. It's virtually impossible. Um, so it was a massive blow. I had to go for a manipulation whilst under anaesthetic. So I went down for surgery. You put to sleep, but they put nerve blockers in your legs and all muscle relaxants. And they just put as much pressure on to break through the scar tissue. And I remember coming round, looking at my leg and there was no change. And the surgeon came to Dr. Strama, brilliant surgeon said, I'm sorry, we, we couldn't get any more movement. So I only had 30 degree flexion through my knee. That was it, could just move it a tiny bit. He said, if we'd have put an ounce more pressure on it, we'd have snapped your femur completely in half. There's not, there's no more, nothing else we can do for you. So they sent me away for physiotherapy for six months. I paid to see a private specialist uh, and at 23 and we sat down and his words were, you need to forget about running and walking. You need to get over it. It's not going to happen. The only way that will happen is if you amputate your leg uh, below the knee, which will give you the best chance of a prosthetic leg, so a false leg, and that will hinge that you can run, you can walk. Again, obviously I refused and I didn't want to accept that. Came out, burst into tears, just thinking what's going on. Um, all the physios gave up on me, doctors, surgeons, after about four months of physio, they couldn't get any, I think we got five degrees extra. So I then went with that focus in my head, that positive thought, I'm going to beat this, I'm going to prove them wrong, I'm going to prove everyone wrong, because I want to be able to run and walk with, with, my, with, my, with my child. Um, so I spent the next eight to 10 months rehabilitating myself, put myself through brutal, brutal um, stuff. So I had to be careful because I knew if an ounce more pressure on my femur would have snapped it, I knew I had to increase the weight. So I'd lie on a chair on the floor with the, with the, the bit where you sit on sticking up. I'd hang my leg up at an angle and my wife um, would hang weights on it and we'd slowly increase. So I'd sit there for an hour, hour and a half, two hours in pain because it hurts just slowly as the weight's getting there. Um, tears would be streaming down my eyes because 
when she, when we took it off, I couldn't put my leg down because it was in that much pain. Um, I was putting belts like that you wear around, you know, like a dressing gown or a robe or uh, into doors, connecting my leg to it and slamming it. Um, just real weird ways of doing it. Probably like Rocky stuff, you know, old school, just let's get it going. Uh, the upshot was um, I got to 95 degree movement in my leg on my own. So I can, I can run, I can walk, I can do all the stuff that I love doing, like snowboarding, downhill mountain biking, rock climbing. Um, the only time you can tell there's something wrong is when I sprint. So don't have that full mechanics. But you know what? The fact I was told I'd never walk again and then I'm snowboarding is a big middle finger to the medical world. <laughs> um, so yeah, so and I was back in work within the police within eight months, but only on like restricted duty. So I was just in the office, you know, and that was it. And then I'd get picked up and dropped off just so I didn't go on to half pay and lose part of my pension. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that, that, that was a recovery. It was hard. It was painful. But it taught me that I'm stronger than what I know I am, that I have that kind of resilience inside me to overcome anything. Um, and that kind of sheer belief and that relentless belief that I can achieve anything if I put my mind to it. I think going through or hearing your story, having that never give up attitude, definitely yeah. something that you keep in your mind at all times and you show, look, look what I went through and how I've overcome all barriers. When people yeah. were saying, I was not going to be able to walk. You had that prove them wrong in a way, not in like how we mentioned a cocky attitude, but you no, no, definitely not. You had that where I want to challenge myself because I want to be get back to the things that I enjoy. You wanted to do it for your um, soon to be born child and do it for your family. And it just shows the power that we have and how the mental games, we can overcome anything. Yeah, definitely. Because what you've got to remember is that pain, adversity, setbacks are temporary. You know, you will get through them if you push through it. But like fail, um, you know, it is temporary. You will get through it. But failing to even try or giving up, well, that's going to last with you forever. And where does that get you? So um, that's a big lesson I've learned a lot along the way. And that kind of set me up for getting back into sport. Should we talk about that? Yeah. Because <laughs> that's something so, like, you enjoy doing. So Yeah. So, um, Obviously, with my leg, I was a bit nervous about getting back into it. So, soccer, I say football, even though I am a big fan of the NFL, by the way, in American football. But, um, so, soccer, I call it soccer, so I know I'm in America. Um, so, I started playing with, with the lads from my section, my block, who I work with, because I knew they wouldn't go in hard, no heavy tackles. But what I found is that my leg was stronger than ever. Scar tissue was stronger than actual ligaments. So, that was a, a box tick. So, I started playing rugby again, started playing, like, um, doing everything. But what I loved was combat sports. Now, I went back to my, my gym, uh, my kickboxing gym, uh, and just went in and said, what can I do? I, never, I, I wasn't going to fight again, but I just wanted to be involved. So my, my trainer, Lee, said, why don't you coach the kids? Your experience will be invaluable for me, he said. And I was like, I love youth development. I love bringing on the next generation of sports thing. It's something that I'm heavily linked with at the moment. Um, so I said, yeah, great. So I was co coaching them, and then a couple of lads had fights coming up. And he... I'm really good with my hands. My boxing is really good. So, he, so Lee said, will you jump in the ring with a few of them um, and just spar with them, let, work on the hands? And what I found was I was getting the better of them all the time. So then I started throwing the odd kick. And by changing the way I thought and f actually fought my technique, I was still really good. And he said, right, let's have a proper sparring, 10-round sparring with, with, with this lad, um, Jamie, I think his name was. So the first four or five rounds, I dominated it. He couldn't get near me, but... 
because I hadn't been training for a fight, my cardio, I just gassed out. So the last six rounds was me just covering up and still throwing the odd shot. So my instructor goes, I think you should fight again. He said, if you, if you put a proper camp in, I don't see anyone matching you. So then I had to kind of go face that fear. And that fear is kind of the fear of rejection, the fear of losing, the fear of looking like a fool in front of your friends, your family. But also, I've never been knocked out. And it was the fear that I'd get knocked out. And if that was my last ever fight, because I've only ever got beaten once in my whole my career in a ring, it was that would be my last one. Because I, I was already a winner. So it was that fear. But if we don't, take, if we don't face that fear and we don't take risks, then we're never going to achieve anything. The biggest risk in life is by not taking one. So I faced that, and my first fight after with a proper I, I won. Uh, I won the next four or five local fights. I then started traveling the country, the UK, fighting on different shows and promotions. And then I got my first title, which was in Wales. Um, I became the Welsh Open Series uh, champion. I then went on to become English um, champion, and then English and British combined uh, champion, uh, which was great. And then I got that call, and that call was from the Great Britain squad. And they said, we, we've been at a few of your fights, we've watched you, we want you to try out for the World Championships in 2009 in Italy, in Pisa in Italy. And for me, this was like putting the universe back right. In 2004, it had been robbed for me. I should have gone to Germany with them. I never thought I'd get back there. And here I am with that call, having this a chance, having this opportunity to represent my country on a global stage. Um, I put a six-month camp in. I sacrificed my body, my family, my social life. I didn't see anyone. I wasn't going up there to make the numbers. Now, I didn't think in my head I, was, I wanted to win, but I, didn't, I wanted to play, so I wanted to get on the podium. At no point did I think um, I'd go on to win it. You always have that in the back of your head, but realistically, with what I've been through, probably not. Um, so I'd get up at five o'clock in the morning. Um, I'd kiss the kids on, on the head, because I've got two by now, uh, Josh and Hallie. Um, I'd go to work and I'd train before work. I'd get into work. My boss was brilliant. On lunchtimes, he'd let me go to Liverpool and train in a uh, MMA gym to work on whatever I needed to work on. I'd eat my tea, so my dinner in work, and then I'd go to my own gym to do weights, do sparring. At weekends, I'd travel down the whole length of the country to train with the Great Britain squad in a place called Nottingham. And I did this for six months. Uh, the upshot was I got selected to go to be part of that team. So on November uh, 2009, I think it was November the 3rd, just gone, 11 years ago, I flew out with the Great Britain team uh, for, for the World Championships in Pisa, Italy. Uh, we did the opening ceremony. So it's not an Olympic sport, so it's not the Olympics but it's the world championships of, of kickboxing and and it was just, yeah, it was packed. Doing the opening ceremony, just stood there looking around, all the other teams following you in. So I can't believe I'm here, you know, after everything I've been through. So then the fights came, they came quick and fast. So you have three round fights. I had 10 fights in four days. Wow. I know a lot of people go, only a three round fight. And I'm like, I'm having 10 fights. You know, to, I had 11 fights getting into the final, but 10, if you had 10 to 12 rounds, you'd, you'd severe brain damage. I went into that fight, the final fight, on the Sunday in the grand final with a broken right wrist and a fractured foot. I broke three of my bones in, in my foot. Because, but it's adrenaline. Adrenaline gets you through it. You don't feel the pain. I often say when, when you win a fight, you don't feel anything. You have this huge euphoric moment. You're on cloud nine. You don't feel anything. Three days later, you're going, oh, when did I get hit there? <laughs> if you lose, you feel everything instantly. Mm -hmm. I mean, and it's the, the world's on you. So went into that fight, um, 
hard fight, really hard fight. I thought I had to knock him out because he was an Italian in Italy. And I'd watch, you watch all of the fights who you potentially will fight against. And in the semi-finals, he fought this big, um, this big uh, black um, French guy. He was a good fighter. Um, I still think I would have beat him, but he would have been a tough fight. He dominated the fight and the Italian got the decision. So that kind of turned everyone against the Italian team. Because they were, they were, they were, I hate stuff like that in combat sport. You see it in the UFC, you see it all over. Someone dominates a fight and the judges give it to someone else. And they do say, don't leave it in the hand of the judges. But sometimes, you just can't knock them out. <laughs> so I went into this final against him and I spent three rounds just absolutely dominating the fight. Teed off on him, took his head off, dropped him. But fair play, I couldn't knock him out. And it came to the end. And I just remember being stood in that ring, just waiting for that hand going down, head down, like really nervous. And then my hand got lifted up. And this release of sheer emotion and joy just poured out at that point. In my head, no one had gone through what I'd gone through, had worked so hard and deserved so much to be there on that day and to become a world champion for Great Britain. A trainer came in, hugged me, and it was like all this anger and frustration about the accident and the limitations that it was going to put on me all came out. I must have been stood there for five minutes, just sobbing. You know, I'm not big enough to say. I sobbed my eyes out because of the amount of... What I had to go through to get to that point to win that, I don't think anyone ever had done. And it was just that sheer relief, that anger, that joy, that it was a mixed emotions of everything just, just broke. It was like a dam breaking and it just all flooded out. Was the sacrifice worth the end result. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, without a doubt. To be crowned a world champion at the, at the pinnacle of so the world championships is the pinnacle of my sport on that day. Yeah, it was. So I sacrificed, obviously. So I came home uh, with a belt. We had a huge party here when I got back. Everyone left and my wife tore strips off me. Absolutely went to town as in shouted at me, was dead aggressive yeah. towards me because I was going, oh yeah, so... Um, because you know, I was a sponsored fighter, so was in, you know, I, it wasn't. It didn't make a great living out of it, but I could travel the world. I could train with, you know, it didn't cost me anything. I had all my gear was given, and I was like, oh yeah, so I'm gonna get, um, gonna give it a week, and then I'm gonna start trying for the defense of it for next year. And she went, no, you're not. I said, what do you mean? No, I'm not. And she just went into one. She says, for six months we've not seen you. I've been bringing up. I said, I've allowed you to do it because I knew, know you need to do this. What else have you got to prove? You are a world champion. I said, and she, and she was right because she had brought the kids on her own. The, the kids had hardly seen me. I was never at home. She's a nurse, quite a demanding job. And um, yeah, so, so that was it really. That was kind of my, and my last ever fight was in 2011 in a, for a charity fight. And, and I won that in front of two and a half thousand people. So finished on a high eventually, but yeah, but it's just, just an amazing experience. And yeah, it was worth sacrifice. I think, you know, my body was sacrificed. I've got like my knuckles back here. I've had pins here. Can't see. I've got scars here. I've had stitches. Um, I've broken every bone probably in my feet. In my feet, but yeah, it's definitely worth it. <laughs> so after that fight, what was next in your path? To what were you hoping to accomplish, or what were your next goals? Um, I kind of went quite career focused, to be honest. Um, I kind of I didn't want to be in the, the firearms unit, and um, I've been headhunted anyway before then to join this elite. Uh, called a tactical unit, so it's like um, an undercover unit, shall we say? Um, and we dealt, if there was a problem there, we'd get sent in there and, and deal with it. So we'd work with um, SOCA, as it was then, or the NCA, so uh, Serious Organised Crime Agency. Basically, it's your, our version of your FBI. Okay. We, were, we were doing big drug job, big firearms job, 
loved it. And then um, basically my, my boss said, you're going places. He said, you've been tipped. You need, you need to go for your promotion. So I got promoted to a sergeant and moved over to Liverpool where I was put in charge of a, um, a very covert um, unit that targeted serious unorganized crime, but firearms. So gun running, um, importation, and also your top level gangs within the, the drugs world. So, um, and I loved it. Um, it was covert. So I was in charge of um, covert operations, um, warrants, intelligence. It was a very, very high pressure job. But for me, when stress and pressure comes, people run away from it. I run towards it because I have a saying um, that pressure and stress can burst water pipes. But that same pressure and stress can also form diamonds. So I choose to be formed to a, to a diamond. So I always say, so I choose to be a diamond, not a broken pipe. Um, and I loved it. I, re I really did. But I wasn't, the sacrifice for that was that was me being me. And I want to do everything that I can. If I'm doing something, I will do it to the best of my ability. No holds bar. Um, because I was in this unit, I was supposed to be on Monday to Friday, eight till four. But because I was the face and because who I am, who I am, I'd be in it about quarter to um, seven. So I'd leave home half five again, kiss the kids on the head, and I would never get off on time until about eight, nine, ten o'clock at night. And this was a pattern that happened all the time. Um, but I loved it. Um, moving forward now, so it's April, it's May the first, never May the second, because May the second is my daughter's birthday. And I'm in work, and I sit down, and I'm start, I start the briefing. I'm in early as always, and I start a briefing with my staff, and I said, "Listen, I need to be off on time tomorrow. It's my daughter's birthday. I've not once been off on time." Um, so if any major jobs comes in, I want one of you to kind of take, take some load off me. True to form in Manchester, which is a neighboring, um, say you have states there. So say it's a neighboring state county for us. Um, there was a, uh, a burglary that went wrong. So a B and E went wrong and there was a discharge to so a firearm had been, had been shot. Um, I was also in charge of all this cross border. So if there's a problem with our criminals from our area in another area, I'm in charge of it. So I was speaking with their top bosses in Manchester, but I was also trying to speak to our, the top kind of boss within us is called a chief constable. So he's the one who oversees the whole of Merseyside. So I'm trying to get on the phone to him to get an authorization to be able to, for the for our firearms unit, to be able to pull the vehicle over and use lethal force and basically shoot them. So it's a lengthy process. So it gets about eight o'clock at night, nine o'clock at night. And I've got two phones on the air going backwards and forwards. And Joe, one of my colleagues, said, Sarge, get yourself off. I've dealt with one of these before. I know you're going to be back in first thing in the morning. We want you to get off tomorrow on time. I said, oh, nice one, Joe. And she had dealt with it before and I trusted her. You have certain people in your squad. You know if you can give something to they'll get it done. So I got home. and It's about half ten at night now. Um, and I eat so just a bowl of cereal. It's because I hadn't really eaten all day because it had just been absolutely manic. Uh, next thing I remember is I come round at quarter to midnight. Um, with paramedics in my bedroom um, working on me. I'd suffered a 15-minute grand mal nocturnal seizure in my sleep where I'd, I'd, I'd stopped breathing. It was, was the seizure maybe a result of like the pressure, everything going on with work or did it come up? No, no. Um, so yeah, uh, no, it was um, basically I had a tennis ball-sized brain tumour in my front hemisphere of my brain and it had grown to that size that it was just pushing on all the or, or had no headaches, no side effects, no symptoms. Just one night went to bed and my life changed overnight. I actually tried to kick the paramedics out the, uh, out the bedroom at first. So I woke up and I was groggy. I was like, what are you doing in my room? 
And they were like, we're, we're trying to get you out. Why are you trying to get me out? And obviously, the paramedics are really good. But I looked to where my wife sleeps and she wasn't there. She was next to me on the other side, stood up, crying, saying, do you think I'd phone the ambulance? She said, you'd have a seizure. You'd stop breathing. And I, I count myself very lucky because if you have a, a seizure that lasts over five minutes, it starves oxygen to the brain. I had over 15 minutes and I stopped breathing. And to my knowledge, I had no real side effects. But I did bite the back corner of my uh, tongue off because there was blood all over my pillow. And my right shoulder had been dislocated through the violent, you know, just how violent it was. So I knew there was something wrong. And they were asking me stuff like, uh, so what do you do for a living? I said, I'm in the police. They said, where do you work? And I just looked at them blankly, hadn't got a clue. Didn't know what my surname was. Didn't know what my address was. So I kind of knew that with my tongue bleeding, blood everywhere and pain that something serious had wrong. So I was rushed to the hospital into resource, uh, resuscitation area, uh, where after a lengthy day, um, it was confirmed. Um, I was in a side room because they thought I had meningitis, like the, the, the terrible one, uh, the fatal one, because my body was covered in spots. But it had been deemed that my, my, my seizure was that violent. It had burst all my capillaries in my body. And that's the reason. So, like, I've got my family all in this side room and the consultant comes in. So the, the, the doctor, the surgeon who was looking after me, and she's taken a bit of back uh, and she says, I've got the news of your scans because I've spent all day getting scans, bloods, urine tests. At one point I was like, I'm, gonna, I'm discharging myself here. This is ridiculous, me being me. Um, so I cleared the room and she goes, um, we're not a specialist hospital, but... Um, We've liaised with Walton Neurological, so it's the best one of the best brain tumour neurological centres in Britain, in Great Britain, which is luckily where I live, is across the water, shall we say. And um, you've got a you've got a, um, a brain tumour. It's a large gliotumour in the front hemisphere of your brain. Um, yeah. So then I kind of was like, all right, yeah, no worries. And like, I could see them looking at me going, do you understand? Because basically I've got cancer, brain cancer. And I looked at my wife and soon as our eyes met, I just burst into tears. Just like, oh, here we go again. Just literally. Um, but what was hard was it was a bank holiday weekend. So it was Friday. And they said, we don't want to keep you in. Um, because point is keeping you in because it's, it's, it was, the weather was scorching. I know some of you might think that doesn't happen in Britain, but it does. <laughs> um, but I had to wait till the Tuesday. So I had Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday till I got seen. Um, so they sent me away on anti-seizure tablets to stop the fit. But then they give you steroids, medical steroids to protect the integrity of the line of the brain. But then you have to have tablets to counteract those tablets to protect your stuff. Yeah, they just give you all sorts. So I went home and it was hard. It was like real hard four days of trying to live life as normal as you could, knowing that I didn't know what was going on. And what made it worse was I was in charge of a riot team for a football game, a soccer game. And it was um, Everton FC Football Club versus Tottenham Hotspur. Um, I'm a big Liverpool fan and there was a guy who didn't know that well because I was just in charge of it and you have people from different areas coming on and over time and he was an Everton fan so that's a big rivalry like a derby um, so I, we were having a bit of banter I was giving him a bit of stick he was giving it back two weeks later he suffered a seizure had a brain tumour and he died three months later oh no so this is what I thought was going to happen to me so imagine having to live for four days, not knowing what was going on. And I kind of explain it like I thought I was on death row. Yeah. My life, I'm getting, I'm getting executed on Tuesday, shall we say. Uh, Tuesday came. Uh, we went to Watton uh, Neurological and I sat down and had Professor Eldridge and his, neo, his neo, neurological nurse. Professor Eldridge is the best brain surgeon, or was because he's retired now, in Britain. He sets the guidelines for neurosurgery. 
any specialist in the country gets stuck, it goes him. And just by chance, he was my, my surgeon. Um, and I explained to them this. I said, listen, it feels like I've been on death row. I've just walked the green mile is into your office. I'm sat here in the chair and I'm waiting for this phone call, the reprieve. What is the one? And they said, yeah, yeah. So mine was classed as a, um, a low grade one, a class two. Um, which, and so I, wasn't bu- I was booked in for surgery six weeks later. So I was sent home on medical steroids for six weeks. Uh, worst six weeks of my life. My bed was like a prison. Um, I get into it at night and all I had the thoughts in my head were, were I'm going to die. I'm not going to be able to walk my daughter down the aisle. I'm not going to be at my son's wedding. Um, I'm going to leave my wife a widow. She's going to have to sell the house. She's going to have debt. You know, I wasn't even worried about myself and all these, you know, were just swirling in my head. I'd eventually fall, fall asleep and an hour, an hour, half later, I'd wake up, bang, those same thoughts start swirling. It's like when, you know, if you've got to get up in the morning early and you go to sleep and it's late and you're thinking, I need to go to sleep, but you can't. It's like that. So as soon as I got up, I just thought, right. So I'd go downstairs and I would do one or two things. So it's like four or five in the morning. I'll either do some DIY, so paint doors, re, you know, do, do a feature wall and stuff. But what I did, because looking back now, it's stupid. My wife was had this, you know, I always said that my, my situation must be harder for her than it is for me because I, I, it's our cancer, it's our journey. But I didn't want to see, I didn't want her to see me crying, to see me be weak. Remember, I'm a, I'm a rugby playing, kickboxing, uh, a bloke, you know, don't really talk about our feelings too much and stuff. So I didn't want her to see me weak. So it puts war in her. I didn't want my kids to see me, me weak and crying, you know, manly things, stupid looking back now. So I'd go for a run. Wasn't supposed to because my seizure had been at night, but I needed to just to get out and get my head straight. So the first mile or first kilometre and a half, I'll be running and I'll just be crying my eyes out. Literally just sobbing, pitch black. And uh, <laughs> I often used to run past people walking their dogs. Now, I'm sure they must have been thinking as I ran past, listen, mate, if you don't like running, why are you doing it? Because all they're going to see is me coming down, crying my eyes out, going, I can't do this. So, yeah. so it's, uh, But... um. The next mile, the next um, 3K will be me. Right, sort yourself out. You've got it out now. Today's going to be a better day. Let's switch on. And, and then I get into the house and I quickly get in and get sorted without anyone knowing. Apart from one time, so it's about six in the morning when I'm in the shower and my wife comes in and said, why are you in the shower? I said, well, I felt really greasy. I just wanted to shower. She went, really? She said, well, next time pick all your running gear up off the floor in the bedroom. I was like, oh. So she, she, did, she did go mad with us, but she kind of understood why I did it. So six weeks later, I book in at Walton Hospital Neurological, ready to go down for surgery. I love being put to sleep, getting put to sleep. I've had that many operations with my legs and through them. I just like trying to fight that anaesthetic. This time, definitely not. So Professor L just came and he, and, he, um, and he sits you down and he goes, so just to go through the risks, there is a high potential that you may not make this surgery. Because I had to have basically a craniotomy, so they cut a massive chunk out of your, your skull and remove it. They then go in and operate around the brain to remove this, can- this cancerous tumour, this tumour. But a tumour in the brain is not like anywhere else. You can't hack pieces of the brain away around it to make sure you've got it. So it's a real-time, delicate operation. So there's a high chance that you may not make it. If you do, there could be complications through strokes, aneurysms, bleeds on the brain, um, infections, and then he said, and, but then where mine then was, was where my higher level of thinking was, but it was also where my personality was. So even if I was to make it, there was the chance I'd come back as someone completely different. So I was wheeled down to surgery um, in the morning 
and just terrified all the way down. Just really not knowing whether I was going to make it. You know, tears going down my eye, really shaking, really nervous. Uh, quite a horrific, terrifying experience. I needn't have worried. I was up talking after three hours of brain surgery and I was discharged within three days at the hospital. It removed 99% of the tumour. So I was then left with um, a nice war wound across my head with stitches, uh, but I also had metal titanium plates and screws where that hole was, and you can still feel them to this day all across my head. Um, so I chose to retire. Um, I recovered, physically fit. I just, again, flipped that switch after being low of, right, get yourself fit, let's get yourself back in, in shape. But I chose to, I was given five years to live, um, because basically it was an astrocytoma. So astro meaning star, it means it spreads. So um, yeah, so I was given five years to live. So with that, I wanted to do something different. I wanted to do a job where I'm not working every hour God sends, because I was working 14, 16 hours a day. I played rugby on a Saturday and I'd coach it on a Sunday. Um, so I, I already had my strength and conditioning qualifications. So I became a strength and conditioning uh, coach. Uh, you know, I, I work with some, um, you know, Olympic uh, people. I work with uh, UFC stars, uh, top boxers. Uh, but what I specialised was combat sport and rugby. And I started working in a, uh, a strength and conditioning gym uh, local to me where elite athletes train there, but also the public can come in and train as members. I loved it. Loved it. I was getting so much out of it. Again, kind of slipped back into my old routine of working long days. I said I never worked weekends, but I did because I just loved what I was doing. Virtually years to the date, I came back from a, um, a, a stag do, um, or a bachelor party, or whatever you just call them over there. Mate was getting married, and I had an appointment the next day. So I went in, and as I opened the door and I got called in, Professor Elger was there. Now, Professor Elger is on the spectrum, so he's not good at people skills. He doesn't like taking meetings. So I've been on three monthly scans since surgery, and it was always Anna Croft and my uh, neurological nurse. The fact he was there, I, my heart sank. I knew something was wrong. We sat down and I just went, what is it? And he spanned the screen round, and I had a black walnut-sized mass in the central hemisphere of my brain. Um, straight away, I think I was just angry because I, I, I I, the amount of stuff I'd implemented and I'd changed my life and I was so physically fit and for it to have come back was just like one of the worst things in, within, within a year, within a year. It should have been five years. And I went, that's a glioblastoma. And I started shouting at him and said, I'm not having radio. I'm not having chemo. I'm not getting put through that. Just proper ranting everywhere. And he said, listen, listen, Dave, calm down. He said, let's just get the surgery done. We'll go from there. I was in surgery two days later. So I'd wait six weeks. Um, this time checked in, same stuff, went down. I was quite happy. Um, surgery didn't go to plan. That walnut-sized mass from scan to surgery, so two weeks, had doubled in size. That's how aggressive it was. That's how quick it was mutating. Um, I spent a night in the intensive care unit, a night in the high dependency unit, and then a further 14 days in hospital trying to get on top of the pain, trying to, yeah, horrendous. Um, also, one of the side effects that you probably don't know is where that hole was. Every time I leant back onto the pillow, all you would hear inside was an internal glug, 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 glug. Fluid fills up the space. And then a drip, drip, drip. So you know if you can hear a drip in your bathroom and it annoys you, turn up. I had that permanently in my head for a couple of days. And I said to them, is this permanent? Because if it is, I think I'm going to end up going mad. They said, not usually, but there has been chances. But after a, after a week, it, it cleared up. Whilst we're in there, 
Anna, the neo, neo, neo uh, I keep going to say neonatal, it's definitely not, I wasn't pregnant. Uh, <laughs> neurological nurse um, comes up and says, we've got your results. So what they do, they, it's called histology. They, send, they take a piece of the tumour, they send it off and they tell you what it is. And so we get into the, to, to the room and I sit there and because we've become friends, we're still friends now and this is like five, six years on. She had tears in her eyes. So I put my hand on her knee and I said, it's a glioblastoma. So a glioblastoma is the world's deadliest tumour. It's the biggest killer than the 40s and it's known within the medical world as the Terminator. So if you think of Arnold Schwarzenegger, I'll be back. It, it always comes back. No one survives past 18 months. That, that's just the upshot of it. So I said, it's a glioblastoma and I have 12 hours to live. Anything you say from now on is a bonus, isn't it? And she said, yeah, yeah, it is a glioblastoma. Uh, do you want to know? Because I like to know everything. You know, I want to know my life prognosis. So I want to know the. A lot of people don't want him, but I do. Because again, I want to try and beat that. Um, and she said, "No, it's not the usual." So usual would be three months to live without any treatment, or twelve to eighteen months with treatment. She said, "Unfortunately, it's three. It is three months without treatment, obviously, but it's six to eight months with treatment." Because mine was that aggressive. So I then had this decision, obviously I burst into tears at that point, as you do. Um, and then I had to make this decision. Do I want to go, do I want to start embarking on brutal radiotherapy, chemotherapy, immunotherapy to then just die in six months time to have a debilitating life for the next six months? Or do I want to go away and spend the, spend the time I have left making memories, making, you know, experiences with the kids while I can. So I, I sent away and I had this decision to make. I slipped into probably one of the darkest, places I've ever been at home. Um, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm a very positive person. I've never suffered depression. I was, I was clinically depressed. I just saw no light. I'd faced, I'd faced the fact I was going to die. Didn't bother me at all. Didn't fear me. I couldn't care less. I basically had no will to move to do anything. I just sat on a couch and I was waiting to die. Just waiting. And the way I kind of try and explain it where I do talks is, that, that time-lapse cinematography where you have one stationary object and then the rest of the, 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 the shot is people moving around it. Well, that was my family, up and down the stairs, round, 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 round. I was just stationary, just like that. Um, about a week into it, my wife said, we're going for a run. You're not sitting on this couch any further. And I went, I'm not going for a run. You can do one. She says, no, we are going for a run. She says, come on, this is what you've done your whole life since you were 16, you know, actually since I was seven, is, you know, sport, physical. And I said, I'm going to die. Why would I put myself through any sort of pain just to die at the end of it? I'm not going. I said, just forget it. Obviously, women are always right, and I end up on this run. So we only do like a five kilometer to run, nothing, nothing major. Worst, worst run I've ever done. I was walking, I was retching, I had a stitch, I had to sit down, thought I was going to be sick at one point. I had to walk, I just felt horrific. And my wife annihilated me, but um, which which is kind of the catalyst why I thought I can't be doing this because she's never beaten me at anything. So, uh, but I can say that because she's at work, so and she won't hear this. So. <laughs> but um, that night, I slept a little bit better, and I just felt that tiny little bit better. And again, I was up at, and I, had, I called it my watershed moment. I was downstairs, I was sitting pitch black, three o'clock in the morning, four o'clock, and I was just crying. And I was just like, "What are you doing?" And I just thought, right. You said you were going to come away, potentially, and live the best three months of your life. You've sat for a week, ate rubbish, which I would never do, and just basically had a pity party. You felt sorry for yourself, you know, for the, the cards that you've been dealt in life again. Um, what are you doing? Or 
and I still didn't think I was going to survive at this point, didn't think I was going to live, or if the average is, is six to eight months, I've never been average at anything. You've never been average at anything. So what you're going to, so basically that decision thought, I'm going to treat this like a fight. I'm going to do everything I can. So if there's people that go, there must be people that go before six to eight months, but then there must be people that get to 18 months. I went, I'm going to treat this like a fight. I'm going to tackle it 360, get my mind right, get my body right, get my nutrition, diet, exercise, alternate therapies, target 360 to give myself the best possible chance to get to 18 months, to spend that time in my family, to spend it making new memories. And that, if I hadn't gone on that run and I didn't have that, that kind of watershed moment, I don't think I'd be here now. I think I'd just, I'd just give up and, and passed out on that couch. And my wife knows that, that I put that down to her. I still don't know why she's with me after everything I've put her through, but you know. <laughs> So yeah, so that, that was, um, so then I started getting back into fitness, I got the kids involved and then I embarked on treatment, um, which was brutal, absolutely horrific, shall we say. So I had to start with uh, dual radiotherapy and chemotherapy. So I had to have radiotherapy on, on, my, on my head, uh, but I had to take chemotherapy 20 minutes beforehand to give itself the both, both shots. So I had the double dose of chemotherapy and radiotherapy at the same time. Um, not a pleasant experience uh, being strapped in so you can't move so your heads you have to have a mold made which is horrible in itself so you get like plaster plaster power whatever it is all over your face uh, straws up your nose and that's quite confined so then they, they put you on so you can't move in radiotherapy obviously it's called greys you don't target the whole of your head they target a specific area um, so you're physically pinned in and locked in with your head in so it, I can imagine it if I'm not, I'm not claustrophobic, I'm not bothered, but the first couple of times I had it, I really had to close my eyes and really just keep my breath because it, it, it felt really claustrophobic. Um, but you'd come out after going in, you come in, go in one person, you come out someone different. I, 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 I kind of say I've been frazzled or I've, I'm just going to go and get fried because um, you come out completely different. And my sister, I couldn't drive now, by the way. I lost my license straight away. Well, I had to surrender it for obvious reasons. Uh, and my sister took me and one time she told me when she got home, she cried because I was cause a completely different person. I was so frail. Um, but it, it had to be done. What, you know, I even took my kids and I started writing a blog about it. I didn't want to, but my friend Matt said, I think it'd be good. Um, so I started, I started a blog, started a Facebook page. Um, and the last time I, I've not, not really looked at my blog for the past three years, but the last, last count had been read nearly a million times in 42 different countries around the world. And I was getting messages constantly saying, thank you for talking about why you're up at night. Thank you for telling us what goes on. I posted pictures uh, behind those doors of radiotherapy because my son, my brother, whoever it is, won't speak to me about it. I now have a better understanding. And then I was getting messages as well from people saying, I'm just about to go through radio. I was really scared, but the fact that you blogged about it and the fact you took pictures, I, I, I've got a little bit of an inkling. And for me, that's probably one of the most rewarding things I could have ever done at that time was share my horrific experiences quite openly, quite rawly for the world to see, to help others. And it wasn't ever meant to do that, but that's kind of how it manifested. Um, it got to the last week of um, dual radio therapy and chemotherapy. And we, I, was, um, I worked for Under Armour. Obviously, Under Armour out there. Thank you, wearing the top there. Well yeah. done. <laughs> I was a brand ambassador for them. Uh, so I was guest of honour to go see it. it was the Rugby World Cup in, um, in, uh, held in England at Twickenham in London and I was a guest of honour uh, through Underwater. So I actually met 
was looking after it, Kevin Plank. So he's the CEO, the founder of, and his story is brilliant anyway, how it comes through and it kind of resonated with me. Um, so we went down there and we watched England versus Wales, um, in which they lost. Now England have never lost to Wales at Twickenham and they did. So I was there for that one time that they did. Um, but Sam, my wife said we actually should, should have picked up on something. I was very manic. Um, I speak quick anyway, but I was focusing on stuff and just constantly talking about it. And I was being sick quite a lot. Wasn't That wasn't so unnatural. Um, so we come back and on the Monday, I go for my appointment, uh, get, get, get zapped, fried, felt horrific. I mean, really did feel horrendous. So I got back home and I just said to Sam, um, she was just about to leave because she was in work and she dropped us off. I said, I'm going to bed. I don't, I don't feel well. I just need to sleep. So I got into bed and I had one single negative thought. And that, uh, that negative thought kind of mutated into a panic attack. Now, I've never had a panic attack before. Um, I thought I couldn't breathe. I thought I was going to die. And I tried to do, I tried to meditate because I'd done a bit of meditation, mindfulness, you know, to calm. I was trying to do that to come out of it. And I just felt this, like this force pushing me into the bed. And the next thing I'm outside and basically I'd suffered, a, I ended up suffering a full mental, uh, psychological breakdown. I was outside on the front of the house, screaming to the, up into the, into the air, thought I'd been sent down, uh, from, from the universe, from God, wherever, as an angel to cleanse the world. Um, I thought I could stop time. But when you're in this psychotic phase, you're right and everyone's wrong. So like Sam's there saying to me, Dave, will you? And I, but I had a load of white noise. So, you know, like if a telly's left on, it's like, <laughs> I had that permanent in my ears. So everything I said, I shouted. So I was, she was saying, I've called an ambulance. So I'd be screaming like, good, I'm glad you found an ambulance. And then my eyesight's really good, 2020, and a vehicle pulled into our close. Um, and I thought it was my mate, Carl. So I ran towards the, to the car and banged on his window saying, I'm okay, I'm okay. And it wasn't him, it, was, and it wasn't even in the car. Um, so obviously he panicked, shot off. Um, I ended up lying down on the floor, which was probably the best thing. Uh, and I was, I was rushed to hospital. Um, I kind of realized I'd started to have, uh, there was something wrong probably about 24 hours into it. So I was in resources, there's people all around me. Um, but, where I was, I was treated quite poorly on the ward by the staff. They were quite condescending and it made me feel as though I, I, I had kind of lost the plot and that I needed to be sectioned. So what I did was I didn't speak to them, but that made it worse. So they were asking me questions and I, I was refusing to speak because when I did speak, because I still had this white noise, everything came out wrong. I've been through a massive psychotic, you know, psychotic episode. My brain was just completely fried. I knew I'd been through it. You know, I wasn't losing it now. Well, every time I spoke, it sounded like it was. I think it was about a couple of hours from being sectioned under the Mental Health Act and taken to a, a psych ward, should we call it, and Clatterbridge Hospital, so the place I was getting my oncology from, so the radiotherapy sent a specialist up to speak to me. Now, I'd refused to speak to most people, and straight away, he just said to me, just to let you know, he'd obviously read my notes, um, before I get on a plane, I have to do a full meditation, otherwise I physically can't get on, and I don't know, something about that, just I eased up and I spoke to him. Uh, and I was discharged a couple of late, days later. It turned out that I'd been left on. The reason why I'd had this kind of full-blown psychotic um, episode was I'd been left on medical steroids on too high a dose for too long. So I'd been on for six months, hadn't been weaned off them. Um, and that had caused a chemical imbalance in my brain. That with the radiotherapy, with the chemotherapy, with that, was just all the perfect storm just for my brain to go, yeah, go. And basically sent me away with the furries. So um, I went and then after that, 
Um, I completed the last week of my uh, chemo and radio, um, but I stayed at my mum's house because very lucky my kids never saw me when I had the seizure, when their paramedics were working on me. Um, and they never saw me having this psychotic breakdown. So I didn't want to run the risk of that happening again whilst I was still in treatment. So I went and stayed at my mum's house for a week, which is quite nice, really. Um, and I made it through that. So that was the first part of treatment. Second part of treatment had to do six months of double strength chemotherapy. So they put me on the highest dose chemotherapy possible because I was a fit young lad. So my cycle would be a week in chemotherapy, gradually getting worse and worse. The second week, I'd just feel horrific. I'd be on the couch, just really trying to recover. Third week, I'd get up, I'd be moving a bit more, I'd be going outside for walks, getting that fresh air in, just getting myself active. And in my last week, um, I'd, I'd be taken to the gym and I'd go to the gym and just do very light stuff, nothing like what I do now or what I did do, but just getting that body moving, getting the body to create those ox that oxytocin, that dopamine, those feel-good chemicals. Um, first cycle, they didn't give me enough anti-emetics, so anti-sickness. So on day five, on my final day of chemotherapy, I started being sick from nine o'clock at night till about half ten the next morning. Every half hour, without fail, I was throwing up um, violently as well. So I'd feel it coming on. I'd be sick. All my clothes were soaked. Did it twice and then just thought, right, I might as well just get naked all the time. Um, I was drinking water knowing I was going to be sick. You know, parts of my lining of my stomach was coming up. In the end, I was that fatigued, that exhausted that I got rushed into hospital. Oh, you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Sorry, someone's just called me and it's all just, I've just dropped out. Where are you? I mean, I'm still here. I can still see you and everything. Oh, I can't see you at all. <laughs> oh, what was that? How did I get there? Back to the meeting. Yeah, there we go. I'm back. Sorry about that. Oh, <laughs> Someone phoned on my phone because it's an iPhone and a, a MacBook. They're all locked up. In fact, let me just put that on airplane mode because he'll try and phone me again. Sorry about that. No so where were we there? Um, where were we? Uh, you were talking about... Oh, that's it. Yeah, yeah. So um, so I was rushed into hospital. I was put on um, like anti um, proper IV intravenous anti-sickness. The same one that I've been on, but that worked to treat. I was completely off by head. It took away the pain. It, it was awesome. Uh, and I was also I had to be on bags. Of, uh, I had to be on a drip for 24 hours of saline to rehydrate. Cycle two, same thing happened. They give me enough, but they weren't strong enough. Back in, Rustin's Hospital went through the same process. Cycle three, because you always have to go and see your oncologist, your doctor before your chemo. And he said to me, I have never, ever seen anyone be so sick as you in my life. Honestly. He said, we're going to try. And he tried me on this new anti-sickness one called Apriant. They'd never been tri tried with a brain tumor, and it worked. So I was like, great, brilliant. Cycle four, fine, still ill. But I handled it a lot better. Thought, right, we've hit a turning curve. On cycle five, me being me, um, decided to go to the rugby in London um, with the lads, which I did every single year. Um, and I went down the day I finished chemotherapy. So as I'm gradually getting worse, um, I'd also stopped taking my anti-seizure tablets for a week because I'd been told that if I was to have a drink, one, one drink, so one pint, um, that would feel like seven. Now, I didn't want to get drunk, but I just wanted to escape I've been in treatment for nearly two years now, shall we say. Um, I, life had changed for me overnight. Uh, I was no longer this successful person. I had to be driven around everyone. I had my wife checking on me every couple of hours, which understandable. She'd seen me, you know, potentially nearly die. And she'd also seen me have my full-blown psychological, you know, breakdown. So I get that. But I had no control. I didn't feel I had control in my life. I wanted some normality. So for me, having one drink 
at the rugby to escape in my reality of cancer just for that week at Ken meant so much to me and I needed to do it. Um, fate played a massive part in this as well. Um, one of my closest friends, Nick, cancelled on me the day before because he was ill. So my, one of my best friends, Matt, who got me to write the blog, who doesn't like rugby, doesn't like sports, to be honest, I phoned him and said, do you want to come with us? It's free weekend, tickets paid for, hotels paid for, just need spends for, you, for your ale, for your, for your beer, your whatever lager. So he said, yes, we got down there and the hotel had messed up our rooms. We were all supposed to be in single rooms. We were now all in double rooms. So Matt stayed with me. Uh, so we were there on the Friday. The game was the Saturday. Went to watch the game. We won. Brilliant. So we come back into Windsor, uh, where, where that kind of queen lives, Windsor Castle and stuff. Lovely area. A few nightclubs, a few bars. So what usually happened, we'd go out and we'd celebrate till two, three in the morning. I wasn't feeling well for obvious reasons. I didn't even have a drink, to be honest. Um, I said, I'm going to go back to the hotel room. I don't feel well. The lads all went, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, yeah, you crack on. And my mate Matt said, well, I'll come back with you. And I said, don't. I don't want to ruin your night. He said, well, I don't really know all these lads because he didn't. It wasn't the same circle. He said, I want to come back with you. I'm tired anyway. Do some shopping before we leave. I said, oh, yeah, great. Get into bed. And then I just, the only thing I remember him saying, are you all right? And I said, yeah, I just can't sleep. For some reason, I can't sleep. And then I came around two days later in Slough Hospital, um, Wexham Hospital. I'd suffered five seizures overnight in my sleep. If Matt hadn't have been there, I wouldn't be here today because I was having seizure after seizure. This time, my, I'd bitten my tongue clean in half um, and i dislocated both shoulders. I was littered in bruises. Um, and if he hadn't have been in that bedroom, in that bed with me, and raised the alarm, the damage could have been, you know, um, yeah, I probably wouldn't be here, to be honest. Um, so again, fate, he was there. Um, don't really remember much about the hospital, which is good, because uh, with my tongue. Um, yeah, and then after that, plain sailing, really. Um, each scan got better and better as well um and it got to a point where it got to the, 18 months was was that target point and it got to that and i thought do you know what sack this i'm already at 18 months i've fit and well i just had me a three monthly scan I, i'm gonna beat this but they say don't look on google and don't so you do back in the beginning there was no good news stories no one survived over 18 months it was all horror stories and then i found a girl in canada uh, i think she lives in america now not too sure and her name was cheryl Proyles. And she'd been living with a glioblastoma at that time for like nine years. So she became that bit of hope for me. So I was like, right, if she can. So I linked, I sent her an email and she, great honor. She must get them from everyone. And then, so I was looking at what she did, what had worked for her, what hadn't. And I kind of tailored what I wanted to do because everyone's cancer is different. That's what people have got to remember. You may have the same thing, glioblastoma, but it is unique to you as your fingerprints, your DNA. What works for one may not work for another. So I kind of looked, a bit of trial there, and got myself a protocol. Um, got better and better. I had to overcome like treatment-related fatigue, which isn't tiredness. It's, and I grieved the person I used to be. So I'd go up, walk upstairs, get a shower. I'd be that exhausted mentally and physically. I'd have to sleep. I had to. Um, but slowly over the time, I could. And then I'd have boom and bust days where I felt great. So I'd go and train, and then I wouldn't be able to do anything for about a week, two weeks later. And I thought, is this me? And it, it started to get me down. But gradually, my strength came back. I started to get over that fatigue. I, 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 yeah. And then it was three months. Every three months, I was having these MRI scans. And then they said, right, we're going to move you to four months. And I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, that's fine. Never wanted to go any further because if you remember from scan to surgery, in two weeks, it had doubled in size. So if it was to kickstart into life and any more than four months, it may be irreversible, the damage. 
spent a year on on four months. I'm back now as a strength and conditioning coach, loving life. Life's back to normal. Uh, still not able to drive. Um, and then I, I get my driving license back, um, which is very rare. Um, and I know that because at my latest MRI scan about a year ago, sorry, um, I said they said, "Well, who's picking you up?" And I said, "No one." And they said, "I said, that's all right. I'm going on I'm going on my own." And while I was still getting changed, I, there was a knock at the door, and it was the it was the radiologist manager, and she said, "Dave." I said, yeah. And she, she sat me down and had a chat and she said, are you sure you can drive? Because if anything was to happen to you on the way home, I'd be, I'd be responsible. I said, yeah, do you want to see me drive? She goes, no, no, but are you sure? So I showed him a driving license. She went, just to let you know, we have never had anyone get their driving license back with a glioblastoma. She said, I'm really sorry. And then she was asking about how long. I said, well, I haven't driven for four years. So I had that taken away from me, getting chauffeured around everywhere. So that was another milestone. I don't think there's that many people in Britain that have their driving license back after that. And then eventually, my oncologist said, we want to move you to six monthly scans for life. So I'll never go any for... My wife was like, no, don't want to. But for me, I was like, no, I think I can now. So we sat there and she went, don't worry, you'll know if there are any signs and symptoms, you know, if it kicks back. To which we both went, well, there wasn't any for them at first one. And there wasn't any for... I was as fit as anything for when it came back. He goes, you'll know. But so far, I'm about three six monthly scans since then. So I'm now... I should have died if I'd have taken that three, if I hadn't done any treatment, I should have died in uh, 2015. And if I was the norm, it should have been early 2016. So I say I'm an ultimate thief because I've stolen five years of life now and I'm not, I don't intend on stopping any time soon. During your journey, how has the relationship with your wife been? Has you guys gotten stronger and like how they say, till death to us part? you guys been able to support each other throughout this whole journey? Oh, yeah, 100%. Definitely. That's why I said earlier. I don't know why she's still with me. But um, no, she's, she was a rock for me. And like, likewise, as I say, it was our... Some people still think it's there. It's not. It affects your friends. It affects your family. Probably more than what it did me. I knew I had the fight. Certainly when I decided to change that mindset from being negative to positive. You know, I thought, right, I am going to beat this. Whereas she just had to support me. She had to be there for me kind of powerless and I know this for a fact because I say apart from the past 16 months and ignoring obviously COVID it's been really good um during the last five years um just before I was diagnosed I lost my nine-year-old cousin Eve um to neuroblastoma a horrific childhood cancer so she'd had that half her life people says why are you so positive or how have you tackled it I said because she used to be in chemotherapy in hospital jumping off and she never moaned and she always said why why would I be sad so I took a lot from that. Um, I lost both my nans in the last four years. Uh, on the day of my nans, my mum's nans funeral, we found out that my mum had been diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer. And unfortunately in 2018, she passed away. Um, just give me a second. <laughs> yeah, so, um, but we were with her at the time and we were holding her hand and, and then leading on to that, that's why I know that it's, easier for it was easier for me because I felt helpless even though I've been through it my mum was saying the fact that you've been through it I know I've got this support but I just felt helpless and really helpless and the one positive thing was that I took from it is that we were there when she passed we got to say those six because I was at a talk once and I one of the things I say is I'm a very positive person I can pick a positive out of any situation and I was at this I could, you know, talk all over Europe uh, at conferences uh, uh, and you know, you name it and one guy put his hand up and he said I don't believe that you, you you can take a positive out of any situation now he wasn't being an idiot 
he said, what was the positive about your mum dying? And I said, the positive I got from it was, if my mum had walked out the house and been hit by a truck or a lorry or, or whatever, a bus, there'd be stuff we that wasn't said. For six months leading up to it, especially in the two weeks when she was in a hospice and was, she'd been given her rights, should we say, we said things to each other that we would never have said before. We had that quality time. We told each other we loved her. She gave up, she'd left my dad 10, 15 years earlier um, and she still was guilty about that. And I was like, she goes, I hope I, you, you can forgive me. I was like, mum, you need to forgive yourself. We, we, you're both happy now. So so I getting that experience and getting to share that, that was the positive from it. And also, um, I got I got contracted skin cancer in 2018 in my uh, on my chest. I don't usually talk about it in depth because it was a benign tumour. So I just had quick surgery, wide awake and whipped out. It was that insignificant really and everything we've been through. And we also unfortunately lost a child at, uh, in it during pregnancy at four months. So so much body blows and people say, you know, it would cripple most people. But again, I believe I'm a very positive person. Um, I, you know, I believe I'm very mentally strong. You know, for me, mental resilience is basically overcoming, adapting or empowering yourself to overcome the uncertain, which I've certainly done. But for me, it's also for flourishing, flourishing and thriving from it. Now, I have cancer. I still live with it. I live every day knowing that my brain tumour can kick back into life. It's like a ticking time bomb. But I choose not to fuel it. I choose not to fuel it with negativity. I choose to fuel it with positivity, with hope. I am realistic, don't get me wrong. Um, I know it can come back at any time. But I've convinced myself that I don't have cancer and it never will. Um, I'm actually grateful for having this, for having terminal cancer, which will, for some of your listeners, will sound crazy. I have a new, fresh, renew, renewed zest for life. I see life through new eyes. Um, I get to cherish the smallest moments people take. Around. I was working 16, 14, 16 hours a day, Monday to Friday, rugby all weekend. I'm suddenly at home all the time with the kids. I'm walking my daughter to school. I go and watch my lad play rugby, a really, really good rugby player. I'd be there for meals. I'd be cooking. Uh, I go and see my daughter's really good at drama um, on stage. So I go to see her shows. Uh, so she's uh, 12 now. Um, it's these little, so I've got better relationships with my family. Not that I have bad relationships with them, but I left home at an early age. I was in the forces. So my sister, um, Basically, I could go four, five, six months with the odd text, the odd phone call. And that was normal. Now, because she's been there for every step of the way with me, all the meetings, um, and with my mum gone, it's kind of us. My dad's, dad's great, but he's moved away. Um, and never really had that kind of relationship where you can talk quite openly about feelings and stuff. He's very old school. So, uh, so it's me and my sister. And if I go a couple of days without having spoke to her, let alone seen her, it feels weird. So it's all that. But then I've seen and done things that I would never have dreamt of if I hadn't have had cancer. I was, I was a star on a sky, skies like satellite um, over here, a brand new series. And I was, I was starred in that. Um, I've done, done and seen things I would never experience to get to talk and share my story, help cancer patients, people suffering with mental health issues all over um, the UK and into Europe. You say, I'm linking with yourself out there. And it's just about giving my story is about, not me saying, look at me, how great am I? I've survived this. It's about hope. It's, it's allowing people to know that there is another option, there is another way. And as I said at the beginning, you know, the pain, this adversity, what we're going through, even, you could even relate it now to COVID, the pandemic that we're in, this global pandemic, this ain't going to last forever. And it's not about sheltering and hiding from the storm. It's about learning to dance in its rain, and that's what I've done. Um, yeah, so I'm very grateful. I get to help people. I've got charities set up. It's... Um, yeah, and that, that's about me, really. <laughs>
So what does the future look like for you professionally and personally? Where are you hoping to accomplish in the next few years? Yeah, so what I've done now is I've obviously I've changed track. I'm still a strength and conditioning coach, but I'm fully qualified now to work with um, and one of the main things. So over here now in the UK, we're in a full lockdown. So households can't mix with households. Gyms are short. Um, it's kind of, yeah, we're all on lockdown. I think you've been through similar. We've already been through one for the whole of the summer. We've now, we've, another one's been enforced on us till December, they say. Um, I've changed. So basically, I've, I've got a pension coming in from the police. My wife earns quite well. So it's not a great pension, but it's enough for me to survive. But I like to work. So I changed from being a strength and condition coach and training elite athletes, elite teams, professional teams, to getting qualifications to do with cancer. So, um, so I now am uh, qualified, got a degree in um, prescribing exercise and referral to cancer patients. So I basically work as part of their medical team to rehabilitate them from, so either to prehabilitate them, so to get them ready for surgery, to get them ready for, for chemotherapy, or rehabilitate them from the effects those, those absolutely um, life-changing effects from chemotherapy, radiotherapy, or whatever comorbidity they are. So I'm working with a, a varied of cancer patients at the moment. One's had a double mastectomy, so she's lost both her breath and had a lymph nose, so she's got loads of scar tissue. She's never been able to lift her arm above over her head, and we've been working stuff. And last week, through doing loads of different various light, it's a lot different as well. With with elite athletes, you're looking for that 1%, that 1% gain. And if they don't get it, it's huge to them. You know, they don't, they don't get a personal best. They don't score a touchdown. They don't win their fight. In the grand scheme of things, that means not a lot. I now get to improve the quality of people's lives, which is huge. It's so rewarding seeing someone who'd given up on themselves to then put them through a very, very basic to start with um, training program and building up on different levels. So you do it in blocks. You have the kind of the cardiovascular kind of block, just getting them back, getting their daily routine back on normal, getting them out more to then implement in strength, which underpins everything. And with that girl, we've been working with her for about eight weeks now. She can now, she started crying because literally I had her laying down on the floor doing certain exercises. I said, now just put your arm back. And without thinking, she'd lay it above her head. I said, have you seen what you're doing? And she went, oh, and she just started crying. And there was another guy, and I just, the, the reward from that is huge. Um, and what I've done is I get funding for it because, so they don't have to pay for it because the, the financial burden that cancer places on a family is huge. And unless you've been through it, you don't understand. They can lose the jobs, they can't work as much. Suddenly childcare is an issue. Um, so being able to give them this, um, I've, I've put a whole project together, um, being able to give these, patients who are warriors I call them my cancer warriors um that opportunity to still train to get themselves fit when they usually wouldn't bother they wouldn't be paying 50 60 pound uh 60 quid which you know say a hundred dollars a session when they've got all the priorities so me getting funding um from Medicash it's a company over here to deliver these sessions means the world to them but it means the world to me as well I've also got this um it's a kind of a package I've done I've got funding uh, so I'm using golf as the vehicle um, and we basically, the people on, on, on it's, I call it the Cancer Society that we have, me and a guy called Tony Berry, uh, set it up. And it's all free, so they get tuition for an hour, free, from a PGA pro golfer. Um, you can come whether you're a beginner, whether you've just started or, or you're an expert in the game. And it's a place more for a sanctuary where you're not getting pity. You can come you're with other people who have been through similar situations who can, uh, you know, 
Um, for me, it's just that escape from their reality. It's an hour with a, with a golf pro, improve, get physical exercise. It's getting them outside. It's getting them communicating. It's getting them in fresh air. But it's also a place to escape their reality at, at cancer. And then there's tea, coffee, stuff afterwards. And it's just a nice little group that we've got now. And then that's span on to those ones can now get free um, tuition. And one of the lads had a, a stover bag in his uh, stomach. Couldn't stand it really started to affect his mental health, smashed up his garden and everything, couldn't cope with it. And I'd been working for him for 14 weeks and I built up the integrity of his core and got his fitness up. And he went for a test to see how it was going. And it, cause it was going to be reversed, but it was going to be reversed a year later. He said it was that good that last week he went in for surgery and he's had that bag removed and it's all been repaired. So he's got a long way to recover, but just getting feedback saying, because of you, that's changed my life. It just means more to me than anything. And if I was to have to have this cancer to put me on this path, then yeah, that's why I've got it and that's why I do it. So a lot of it is working. Um, I've got a charity or a business I'm launching with a, an ex-professional football player, so soccer player here, who I helped because I help people all over the world who have oh, help. I give them advice and I give them hope and I give them guidance. I don't claim to know what I'm doing all the time and I never advise them what they should do and what they shouldn't do. But I think I've become that hope like that Cheryl Brooke Proyles has in America. And I helped this ex um, footballer, and we're now set up a business called Ahead of the Game CIC, and it's going to be going into areas to develop underprivileged areas by putting 4G or weather pitches in to make it a central hub for people to hire out the pitch at really cheap options. Have an academy to get the youth, girls, uh, boys off the streets of the crime, putting them through football, rugby, whatever sport it is there, but have this central hub for them to be able to run their own businesses out in their own clubs so they can do yoga, they can do Zumba, they can do whatever they want. But also we want to put in job fairs to help them seek employment, financial fairs, nutrition. Yeah, just this is what we're, we're doing and we're working at the moment with the PFA. So it's the, uh, the Professional Football Association. So they're the ones who look after all the football players. And, and also we want to make an impact within school as well to get more physically after. Because in this country, we have a massive problem with mental health at the moment and obesity. So what's that one thing that combats both of that? It's physical exercise. Now in this country, if you don't do sport outside of school or you've not taken it up as a, a qualification, you get less than an hour a week. How is that possible? So we want to put projects in together. We'll be going for 10 weeks. We have a, a, a speaker who's come through adversity, so myself or, or the footballer, but it's not just about us. We get other people in where we see fit and nutritionists in. Uh, but then each week we have a different sport getting played and we've got links with golf, uh, football, American football, um, netball, just trying to get them, even if no one takes that up, they've had another 10 weeks of, you know, of extra, extra, you know, pee. but it may spark one kid to want to take up a sport. But then what we're doing is we're using the local clubs to grow there. So they're going to come in, they're going to do that. And hopefully that will signpost or feed their club as well. Um, Lots of plans at the moment. COVID's kind of shut that down a lot. Um, but hopefully New Year, that's going to get all launching and that'll be full time for me. And for me, it's just about, while I'm still here, because I know I'm on borrowed time, um, just giving back and creating a bit of a legacy for my, my kids, really, to show that I was here um, and that I actually made a difference. For someone that's listening to this interview, based on your journey and experience, what tips or advice would you give them to overcome their obstacles, accomplish their goals, and rise to their challenge? Um, I think having that hope 
having that positivity is probably one of the most key things, having that will to overcome it. Because um, I was always told, we're very rare to have someone like you in front of us who is so positive, so driven to beat it. Apparently, most people will just give up. And if you give up, your body will give up, and that's you. So when you're faced with a challenge, whether it's medical, whether it's personal, it's trying to look for the positives in that situation because there will be one there, and it's focusing on that. Um, it's believing in yourself and trusting in yourself. You don't know how strong you are until strong is all you have left. And I learned that the hard way. I had to go through the depths of hell. Um, and another key piece of advice is, yeah, everyone's, you know, I get told the time you're so positive. Some days I'm not, and that's normal. It is important to know that some days I will wake up and I just think I can't bother today. I can't be bothered doing anything. I don't, I don't even want to look after myself anymore. I'm just fed up with it all. That's fine. As long as at the end of the day, you draw that line under the sand and the next day you tell yourself it's going to be a better day. And that's fine. And it is a better day. And that's natural. You can't be positive and full of beans 100% of the time. So it's acknowledging and understanding that it is okay to have down days. It's fine. But it's when those down days turn into the next day and the next day and the next day, you're looking at probably a mental health problem such as depression. So it's important that you speak out and the, and, and do speak out. It is okay not to be okay. There's such a stigma at the moment with mental health in men i don't know what it's like over in, in america but here you know it's like we're men we don't speak about our feelings and one of the reasons why i do and i, I talk very openly about my mental health a bit more in depth than what i have done here because i am aware of time um i'll stand there and i say the reason why i speak because they say you you're so raw you're so open why uh, thanks for doing that i said i don't do it for the thanks i'm stood here on stage saying in front of 800 people telling you about mental health all i am hoping is that by telling you everything that I've gone through to strangers who I don't know, it will inspire at least one person to accept that they need help and to speak to someone they know because there shouldn't be a stigma, a taboo. It's not a sign of weakness. Asking for help, if anything, it's a sign of strength. Um, so it's believe in yourself. Um, remember, adversity and that challenge is, is going to happen. It will come over it. And, and don't use what I hate is like, oh, I'm a failure. It's, it's changing that inner thoughts, that, that negative language. No one is a failure at all. When you fail, you learn. It's a lesson. Look at it as a positive. Um, the only time people don't achieve their dreams or goals or ambitions isn't because of failure. It's because they've given up. They fail. That's when you fail is when you've given up. As long as you're failing, you're learning. Then it's a positive and you will succeed. And to hammer that point home, Thomas Edison conducted 1,000 failed. So he failed 1,000 time experiments. On his 1,001st, he kept going, he invented the light bulb. So no one's ever a failure until they quit. So it's, yeah, head down, learn to learn just to weather the storm, uh, keep looking forward, uh, take those down days when you need them, but pick yourself up straight away, and remember, you will get through it. Lean on your family for support. Um, yeah, and just try and stay positive as much as you can. Believe in yourself. And always remember, not everyone that takes your life and tells you what to do is right. If I'd have listened to the doctors um, back in my bike accident, I wouldn't have a leg. I wouldn't have been world um, kickboxing champion. Although my wife does says, well, you'd probably have been a, a para-Olympian para at the Olympics in something. That's her for you. If I'd have listened, to, I was actually told to go away, get my affairs in order, eat, drink what I want, which I kind of started to at one point. If I'd have listened to that, I wouldn't be here now. So it's important that you have those low periods. That's my process. I go low to then snap myself the quicker you can flip that switch to positive, to that drive, to that will to live, have a focus, set small goals as well. 
these little goals that you can tick off and get that endorphin rush to, will eventually lead you to that bigger goal, to that success. I think I covered so many stuff there. I don't know if I answered your question properly. <laughs> no, 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 you did. Dave, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. No, I appreciate, I appreciate you listening to me and getting my story again. It's just I want to spread this message of hope and positivity that there is another way. And by people listening, hopefully in America, if that inspires one of them to really have a look at their life, you know. And one thing I like to say is, if you were given a year to live, what would you do? What would you see? Who would you spend it with? What holiday would you go on? What experiences would you do? And who would you choose to spend it with? So why aren't we doing that now? Why does it take a seismic event like it did to me? Because it, it took me, I wasn't, I wasn't like this, for me to happen to realise that life is short. There's no regos, there's no mulligans, there's no start again, there's no respawns. We only get one shot at this life. So get out there, enjoy life. I know it may seem down at the moment, but look for the positives. More time at home with your family, and I don't think you are in lockdown anymore. But for us, it's more more time spent with the family. So some people may see that as a bad thing, but um, but yeah, just just stay positive, and it's important. You know, we are going to get through this. The world will come out of this a better place because of it. Uh, hopefully, early next year, but we'll see. Where, yeah, but just stay strong. Remember, we've only got one shot at, at this life. Uh, make the most of it because you never know what's around the corner, and I'm living proof of that. Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow and subscribe on all major audio platforms, and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel to see the full-length episode in video format. What path will you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.